Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. Today we discuss Hector's decision to work with the FBI, to change the course of his life and begin the journey to where he is now. We explore his moral considerations as well as the very practical implications of such a decision. We also answer a listener question on NSO Group and high-level hacking. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent working my entire career in cybersecurity and now founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined as always by Hector Monsiger, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for the large number of systems that he had the skill set to hack into. Now red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert, also friend and podcast co-host. How are you doing today, Hector? Oh, I'm doing great. Busy week, but I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Yeah, busy too. So we got some deep subjects to talk about today. We're going to get into your mindset, how you came to work with the FBI. We're going to talk about your very first hack and what really was your very first hack. And then we have some listener questions that we're going to go through and talk about. Looking forward to it. So Hector, we're going to talk about something a little sensitive today. Um, We've talked about it before, you and I. I think it's something you've wanted to get out there. It's just you and I talking with people eavesdropping. So uh, we're going to talk about the decision you made. Uh, the decision, you know, I kind of put in front of you. Uh, maybe I put more weight on one side or the other of the decision for you. And maybe we can talk about that. Maybe you have questions for me about how I presented that to you. But the decision you made between going to prison or working with the FBI. It, it was definitely a difficult decision to make. It wasn't easy. I would say that. It is a decision that I, I still deal with today. All right. Let me set the table just for people that didn't hadn't here before in the past. So I'm a former special special agent with the FBI. Um, we were tracking down a hacking group called Lulsec uh, and also Anonymous. Um, it led me to Hector Monsegur's front door. Um, if anybody wants to hear that story, listen back to old episodes of A Hacker in the Fed, and can, we can talk about getting up to that point. But at one point, I walk into Hector's house, and we sit at the table, and we talk, and I show him the evidence that we have against him, and I give him a decision. Hector, you're facing almost over 100 years in in jail for what we have you on, Um, or we can go, and we can work this out, and we can work a deal out, and uh, you can work with the FBI uh, to try to give the FBI some insight on what's going on in the hacking world and the hacking community, and so... That's what you were facing that that June night, sitting at your your kitchen table. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it was it was a, it was a, I would say a difficult day in general because it was my grandmother's uh, one year anniversary since she had passed. Um, that was June seventh, two thousand eleven. She passed on June seventh, two thousand ten. So I was already emotional. I was already in a, in a, in a difficult place, and. Um, there was enough indicators, even if there were coincidences, but there were enough indicators that um, something was about to go, um, you know, uh, very left for me in my life. And I think a lot of that was gut instincts. I think a lot of that was 
okay, I think I crossed the line. Maybe it's time to to deal with what's next. Well, what's next was the knock on the door, which, you know, we've discussed uh, thoroughly in our first episode together. But really, the the I would say the, the focus of this conversation is what led me to making that decision. Now, when Chris knocked on my door, and, you know, he was there with his, his colleagues and he was just doing his job. Like there, there's there's no love lost that I have towards him or his, or his, his colleagues. They were, doing, just, they were just doing their jobs. What I had to deal with at that moment was the consequences of my actions. And believe it or not, you know, and almost thankfully to these guys, um, I started to, and I, in mind, I should have learned this early on in my life, uh, Chris, but I started to to really utilize consequential thinking after that decision. So, so what is the decision? The decision here was: Do I, you know, just take it on the chin, lose my my foster kids, you know, go to jail for hundred twenty something years, and 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 fight the good cause from you know behind a federal facility, a federal wall somewhere, or do I try to correct my wrongs? I would say either direction weighed heavily on me. Because in one sense, you know, my concern was, are people going to judge me for this? They did, and they still do. Is it justified? I'm not really too sure about that. You know, whenever I think about cases like, uh, you know, Sammy the Bull with John Gotti, you know, that, that was that was one of the biggest, you know, situations that I, I remember as a kid, where you know, as soon as John, uh, as soon as uh, Sammy the Bull you know, uh, went to court and he pointed his finger at John Gotti. Everybody in the streets were like, oh, my God, Sam's, you know, Sammy's a rat. But here's the thing with Sammy. That is that he was probably the most feared person in New York, in New York City at the time. He still is. If I, I don't think even, even at his age right now, I don't think that any of you would go up to him and try to challenge him. I mean, this is a man that, you know, he, he's... For lack of a better words, he was a killer. And so the decision wasn't easy for him. As you start to listen to his story and read his book and all that, or, or read the content from his from his YouTube videos and all that, what you see is that his decision was based off of the fact that he felt betrayed himself. Now, I'm not comparing our situations at all. That's not the point here. I'm giving you an example. Even when you hear about Takashi 6 ix decision, you hear, you know, whenever he speaks about his situation, I'm sure he doesn't like the fact that he had to make that decision. But the reality is that his own friends, his own people were robbing him and they were fucking around with his baby moms. They plotted to murder him and rob him. So when it was time for him to go to prison and make that decision or deal with the decision, he was like, fuck these guys. They just try to put my lights up. So what really helped me, and this is where we get into the conversation about hypocrisy in that community, Chris. What really helped me is when Chris opened my eyes to the fact that by the time the FBI knocked on my door, there were already a ton of people pointing their fingers at me. There were rats and informants and security professionals bystanders, random-ass motherfuckers that I did not even know. And I'm not going to mention names for obvious reasons, but people that were interested in taking me down that weren't even part of my case. 
so there was a feeling of betrayal there. And I felt like, well, fuck it. You know, if, if that's the way they're going to play, then I'm going to, I'm going to partake. I'm going to parlay rather. But that wasn't a hundred percent of my decision-making or the reasoning for it. I would say 80% of it honestly was the fact that I had these girls that I was responsible for. So the big question you could ask Chris or anybody for that matter is, well, if you were a foster parent, why were you hacking? Why would you put yourself in that predicament? And the reality is, is I have no good answer for that. You know, I'm 50-50 split on the fact that for a long time, Chris, I was hacking. I was committing crimes for, you know, 15 plus years before Chris ever even knocked on my door. It was going to happen eventually. And me becoming a false parent was not a planned event. So, yeah, it was um, it was a difficult set of circumstances that I had to deal with. And I had to make a decision that was right. And I decided to correct my wrongs. I decided to deal with the consequences. Yeah, you're going to call me a rat. It is what it is. Doesn't hurt my feelings. But I am very still, Chris, believe it or not, I'm very apologetic to those that, you know, who maybe have felt betrayed by me, by that decision. You know, I get it. Would I do it again? Would I go back in time and do it again? Absolutely. Because, you know, my girls mean more to me than most of you. And I'm sure if you ask any parent on this planet, if they would choose their kids over strangers, I'm sure they would choose their, their kids over the strangers 100% of the time. So you said the word rat three or four times there. Is that hard for you to say? No. I tell you that, well, at the beginning, yeah. At the beginning, it bothered me. That, that's not the association I wanted. That's not who I am. I, if you're in my personal life, you know, there's, there's many of you listening that are in my personal life. That you, I know, you know, I, I may know some of your secrets. And never once have those secrets come out of my mouth. But it's just one of those things where, you know, I was between a rock and a hard place and I I had to choose the direction that made sense. It's one of those words that I can't say in front of you. Like if I was describe, you know, you and I and you're standing there, I, I can't say the word rat. I can't bring myself to do it. I can't do it. I find it disrespectful to you and what you did. Have I said it behind your back? Maybe I probably have. I'll admit that, you know, um, you know, because it just it cuts to it. and It's easier for that. Oh, yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know why that's the word that I choose that I can't say. Um, you know, I could soften it and say, you know, cooperator or whatever it was. Uh, but for some reason, I can't say the word rat in this. I think this is the first time I've ever said it out loud to you. Yeah, you're right. It is the first time, you know, and and, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that, you know, that. that uh, but. Even though I appreciate, I, even though I do appreciate the gesture, Chris, you know, this is something that moving forward is something that, that shouldn't bother either one of us. The reality is that, that rat bullshit is exactly that bullshit. You know, you can't you can't be part of a society where you know you want law and order and you want to fucking talk about oh my god the crime is going up, but then in your second breath you're like oh man these fucking rats are you know they're terrible stitches get stitches right. It, I mean, it's a hypocrisy, you know, within this, uh, you know, society. And, and, and even when it comes to InfoSec, InfoSec, the InfoSec community is the one that I found the strangest and the most uh, hypocritical when it comes down to my decision. 
because there are a lot of people in that community who, one, if their company's hacked, guess who they're talking to, Chris? They're talking to the FBI. They're talking to, or if, if they're not in the United States, they're talking to their respective FBI, right, within their country. They're working on incident response. They're putting together reports. They're putting together evidence. They got chain of custody. They have uh, screenshots and documentation on who did what, and they will go onto the end of the earth to, to make that attribution. I don't know, but that sounds to me like you're a fucking rat. I, I mean, I try to put myself in the same spot on whether, you know, I, I mean, I've never been part of something like that, but let, let me try to put it in perspective for myself. Like, so I loved being in the FBI. I absolutely loved it. It was, it was as far as professionally, it's the best time of my life. Um, I loved the people. Um, that's why I've continued to work with people I know from the FBI. I just loved being there. And recently, uh, you know, the FBI has been involved in things, at least as the media portrays it and what I see from the outside that I don't somewhat agree with. Um, you know, some of the things seemed very strange to me. It wasn't the FBI I knew. So I can, I've always, I feel that loyalty that you feel to the people that you were committing crimes with. And I, I guess, uh, I mean, I, maybe rats, not the, the proper term, but I would feel weird to talk shit about the FBI because I loved it so much. Yeah, but see, there's a big difference, okay? There's a big difference, and that is that and you and I had this conversation not that long ago where we were discussing Silk Road, and without mentioning names, we discussed uh, a couple federal agents that made a left turn, right? Outside the FBI. Outside the FBI, but they were still federal agents. They Technically, they're probably colleagues, but not within your, your bureau, right? Sure, yes. Okay, all right. They did make a left turn. And so I asked you a question very bluntly, not, not that I was questioning you as a man, because I know that you are a great man and you're professional and everything, but I still had to ask you anyway, Chris, if you were the one that identified that these guys took a left turn, would you, would you, would you handle it as a law enforcement officer? What was your answer? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're no different. Once they broke the law, they're no different. Absolutely. But on the, on the other side, and, and I'm not giving like you humanized to me, it was used to, it used to be black and white. You know, it was very black and white. Like these guys, oh, you know, they broke the law. Fuck them. They're done. But, you know, you've humanized it for me. So, you know, I, I, I feel like I can't be black, so black and white about it. But I don't know. When you ask me that question, it, it, it seems clear to me. I got a lot of things pulling me in different directions here. Yeah. I, maybe that's just what comes along when you mature. Uh, I'm not really sure. I don't even know if I like it. <laughs> it's one of the things that I did not expect I had to deal with, right? You have to remember that there was a lot of variables involved in the decision-making. Yeah, the girls, that's one. Two, do I really want that label, right? Then, of course, three, when I found out that there were so many people working actively to take me down, that really helped sway things, right? That's why I brought up Samuel Bull as a first example, because in his case, the FBI played him a recording of John, right, John Gotti, Yep. Um, saying, hey, we're going to have to whack this guy. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that completely changed the conversation with that specific case. And I feel like once I heard the same, they, well, they weren't going to whack me, but they were trying to take me down. I was like, okay, well, fuck them then, right? But then there's a fourth point that I want to address. I said this on Charlie Rose. I did, an interview, I did an interview with Charlie Rose as soon as I came out of prison. And he asked me this question, you know, why? 
And I gave my answer. And Charlie, uh, he, he rightfully asked me if I was justifying my decision. And the point I want to make is, well, we were all anonymous, right? And I don't know these people. And I don't have their names. I don't know who they are. I can't point my finger at them. If, I, if we were to go to trial and I had to testify, the only thing I could testify to was, well, yeah, I guess this nickname said that they did X, Y, and Z, but I have nothing else to offer beyond that, right? So it was easier for me to make that decision knowing that I knew zero people involved in my case. And then, of course, it turned out that most of them were like, you know, across the ponds, as they say. So it, it was it was easier for me to make a decision knowing that, one, my girls were at stake. Two, people were taking me down anyway. Three, I didn't even know these motherfuckers from a hole in the wall, so I couldn't identify them. And so it was the decision for me was easier to make. And you know what? It's not the best answer. Maybe people might not like me even more because of what I'm saying. But the reality is, is that, look, you know, there was a lot of variables involved. There's not just a, a, a black and white scenario where you're like, yeah, yeah, today I'm going to wake up and rat everybody out. That's not what happened here. Well, the one thing I think people get lose in this is, is you're right. That, that it's not like Sabu got arrested and the next day, Hector Monsinger handed us the name of every hacker in, anon in Anonymous. I mean, you didn't know all the hackers in Anonymous. You didn't know anybody by real name. You knew Nick's. You didn't have conversations. You didn't store logs of conversations of things going on. You really were there to give us insight of what was happening in the hacker world. You didn't have any like real like history of things or evidence to be presented. So, so you're right. Like, I, I mean, I, for you to process that so quickly that if whatever you were giving up, you didn't have shit to prove it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth it. But, you know, I never thought of it until today or until you said it. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was part of my thinking, right? So in my head, well, so you, you know, it's funny. It's funny because when we go through our stories together, you and I deviate on one point and I'm sure you've noticed it so far. Um, and that point is how long it took between the knock on the door and me going with you to 26 Ferro Plaza. In my head, it's, it, it was maybe minutes, okay? But from what you tell me, it was two hours, right? Yeah. No, it was definitely hours because my boss's boss was there and kept sending a guy named Davey in and being like, hey, what's taking so long? Well, so and this is for Davey and your, and your boss listening. The reason why it took so long is because I was processing all this shit in my head. The, the first thing I was processing was, is, okay, what is going to happen to the girls? Am I going to really be an asshole and destroy their lives and put them through, you know, foster care? And, and you know, without even going into details, but you guys know foster care in this country right now and has been fucked up for quite some time. And the one thing I did not want to do is have two little girls go into it. The second thing, obviously, is the... the you know, the, the feeling of betrayal, right? Uh, of knowing that people were taking me down from my own circle and even people that I didn't know. But then, of course, there's that part of me that's like, hold on a second. I didn't even know these fucking people. So if Chris was to put me on a stand, or rather the prosecutor, what am I actually going to say? You know, in that, in that little, in that little uh, testimony box, you know? So, I mean, these are all things that were going through my head. While you guys were talking to me, I was just weighing everything out. And I made the one decision that I thought was the best. Plus, I'll be honest with you, 
I tend to take things head on. I don't like to to kind of run away from my problems. And so I felt like, you know what, maybe it's time for me to deal with this. But that was probably 5% of it. Maybe, maybe 10. But you put all of that together, that's what led to the decision. That's what led to me making that decision, really. You you said earlier that you apologized to the people that called you rats. Like you you sorry for some some reason. Some reason I don't really agree, and I don't think we have to go back on that. You have to even apologize to them. Have you ever apologized to the people like they were, you know, the victims of your hacks? So let's just go back for a second. Uh, I, I said I was apologetic to those who felt that, you know, that I had betrayed them, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of people that fit within that within, within that little uh, frame. There are people in the InfoSec community who weren't even involved in my case, who weren't arrested, who have come to me and said, you know, Hector, uh, I really like Anonymous. You guys did a great thing for the security industry. Hear this out. Hear this bullshit. You did a re- you know you guys are doing a great thing for the security industry. You pushed a lot of companies to 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 open up their budgets to to bring in security professionals, yada yada yada. And I forgive you, Hector. And you know, I, I sat there on at least two different conversations because it wasn't a one, it wasn't a one-off. And I sat there just completely confuzzled that I'm having somebody who essentially works with the government, and you know, they're telling me that they forgive me for making that decision. Uh, I later found out after, you know, doing a whole bunch of reading and, and talking with a lot of folks that are, are very knowledgeable in healing and, and, and uh, coping mechanisms and so on. I found out later on that the reason why people said that forgive me, or maybe this is all theoretical, obviously, is because they wanted to, to finally release, you know, release the feelings they felt during that, during that whole time. To be honest with you, I forgive, I forgive a lot of people as well. But I, I find it really fucking odd that I have people that actively work with law enforcement telling me that they forgive me for my decision. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the things about this industry that bugs me out the most. Uh, it's a lot of there's a lot of it's <laughs> a lot of weird shit going on with it. Uh, but going back to your question, what was your question again? You ever apologize to the people that were the victims of your hacks? I've apologized to a, a few victims so far. Have you ever met one? I've met them. Okay. That's a great question. Thank you for that. So I was in Milwaukee or Detroit doing a speech, and I ran into a guy who was part of the Sony security team. And he kind of gave me a rundown as to how his day went, um, you know, on various hacks that happened within, you know, within Sony. And, uh, you know, when I was there, I was like, damn, bro, I'm sorry. Like, I I really am. Um, He was like, no, it's okay. It was part of my job. Like, it was just an everyday thing. Um, Sony was at the time was being compromised by a ton of different hackers and different groups for different reasons. But there was also another scenario where I, I contacted a victim directly and I tried to apologize and they, uh, they've, they've declined it, which I respect. And so I've kind of left it alone since then. If I, if, if a victim ever does want to talk with me, I would love to talk with them and share my experience and apologize. Absolutely. I'm very apologetic about that stuff. Trust me when I tell you, I'm not proud of that time in my life at all. No, I I, I, I agree. You, I've never seen when you were boastful for anything, um, any of these things. It's, you know, just you telling the history of what, what things are. It's not, it's not boastful in any sort of way.
the thing is, what people don't realize is that I tried to get into the cybersecurity industry very early on. By the time I was 18, I immediately started sending my resume out to companies. Yes, I was a gray hat, but I was willing to change. And I just kept hitting a, a wall, Chris. I could not get hired. And for those of you that don't know what the cybersecurity industry looked like 20 years ago, it was very much like a boys club. It was very, it was very one-dimensional. It was, it was pretty much one demographic. And a lot of those guys all worked together. They stood together. They ate together. They lived together. It was very hard for me to get a job. And I ended up working at a fucking porn site because they needed a systems administrator. And that was my foray into the industry. Through, through being a systems administrator, I climbed my way up into security. This is prior to the arrest, right? This is, this is your very first job in, in the industry. Absolutely. That was my very first job. This was back when I was in my, you know, my late teens, early to uh, early, early 20s. And so getting into the cybersecurity industry was extremely difficult, uh, by the way, uh, at least for me. And by the way, what I want to point out is uh, it kind of makes sense. Because if you look at some of the hacks that I did or participated in, it was against cybersecurity companies. Maybe I felt like, okay, well, they won't hire me, so I'm going to show them, you know. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was a very weird time. I'm glad that the industry now is much more inclusive. There's a lot more women. There's people of color. And I'm very happy about that because 20 years ago, it was not like that whatsoever. Yeah, all positive changes. Do you remember your very first hack? Yeah, absolutely. But the, you can't forget your first hack. It, <laughs> How old were you? Um, I think I was 15. I was maybe younger. But this was during the craze of like, you know, back orifice. <laughs> there was a, a sub seven, right? Those kind of uh, uh, sure. remote access, remote administration tools. And so there was a situation where um, I identified that somebody was infected with BO, and uh, I pulled their. Um, they had some FTP configurations on their computer. The FTP config um, led me to an FTP server. That FTP server was a German warehouse site. But I, I, you know, I'll be mean, honest with you, that you could technically say that was my first hack. But whenever I tell the story elsewhere, they ask me the same questions. I'm like, well, my first real, real hack, it didn't involve uh, an infected computer, right? It was actually a, a, an actual compromise. It was, a, uh, it was a server in Japan. It was a university uh, machine. Uh, it was running SunOS at the time. And for those of you that are curious as to what the hell SunOS is, it's basically Solaris. It's a Unix variation. And I found a vulnerability in uh, Slash. Well, I didn't find it. Well, I did find it, but the vector itself wasn't found by me. It was an old vector by then already. Uh, it was a uh, uh, file read vulnerability uh, over CGI uh, slash CGI dash bin slash PHF. And basically, just to visualize it for you guys, uh, that script or that, that app uh, essentially allowed someone to, to kind of like leave comments or notes on your web server, but it did not do any input validation. It allowed the adversary, in this case me, to uh, pipe a command that would be executed on the server and or read files. So I, I read the password file on the host. I cracked some passwords. I telneted in, and that was my first quote-unquote official hack. Did you know you were breaking the law? Yes, I did. And what happened inside your mind in order to step over that barrier? 
I justified it. How? I justified it because I was following the, you know, like the hacker's manifesto, right? I, I was following the concept that hacking isn't necessarily bad. And I thought that if you do hacking out of curiosity to learn, it wasn't that big of a deal. Now, in hindsight, I realized now that I'm a, <laughs> I've, I've matured, I realized that, no, that was breaking the law. That was definitely hacking into a system or compromising a system. I was, I was circumventing their controls. And I was getting access to that system. Absolutely. Just because I just because I broke into it to learn how to operate Unix really does not hold any water in court. Did you feel bad afterwards? No. In fact, I took care of the server. I passed it. <laughs> I had access to that server for like nine years. In fact, if my friend Sonic, if you're listening, remember that server in Japan? Yeah. That machine, you know, lasted like eight or nine years of me patching it. Eventually, it took it down. Did it make it easier the second time? To do it? Did you not have to? Was the barrier of breaking the law again not as high? That's a great question. And yes, it was easier for me because now I proved the concepts, right? It's one thing to read about a vulnerability. It's another to do a proof of concepts. Once you see it works, once you see that the concept works, then you know, okay, I could do this. Now it was a matter of finding new vulnerabilities. I'm talking more about the moral barrier. Did it make the moral barrier easier for you to step over? Well, morally, I still felt the same that I that I did when I did, when I, when I engaged in that first hack, right? That you didn't think it was a crime. Well, I didn't I didn't think it was that big of a deal because I wasn't being malicious about it, right? In my head, and obviously I, that's not that's not in my head anymore. By the way, audience. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm just trying to get into your mindset when you were young, and maybe you know help people that are involved in this or thinking about getting involved in this and how it's not so much a good thing. hundred percent. And I agree with you, right? The reality is that at the time, since I did not consider myself a black hat, I did not consider myself, oh, and back in those days, a quote unquote bad hacker, instead of having that uh, black hat moniker, uh, you were called a cracker. So in my head, I wasn't a cracker. In my head, I was like, I was a curious kid. I wanted to learn how to operate Unix because I learned, I read about the masters of deception and fiber optic, and he was like the Unix guy. So I wanted to be the Unix guy, okay? And so I figured, hey, if I break into a system or two, it's not going to, you know, no harm, no foul. I'm not defacing anything. I'm not destroying anything. But as I move forward in time, I did become the bad guy. And I started doing things that, you know, now, especially I regret. You knew at the time when you did it, was that conversion from the, I'm not doing bad things and now I'm a cracker? Well, I could tell you exactly when, you know, the there was a kind of like a switch that went off in my head. And so back in like the mid, the mid nineties, early two thousands, but it's more, more like the mid nineties, you had a group at the time called, called Cult of Dead Cow, CDC, you know, they were pretty much a, a think tank. That's really what they were. And some of the guys from that team had came up with a concept called hacktivism. And hacktivism is something we've discussed already, but essentially it's when you take uh, hacking skills and you apply it to your own personal activism. And so what usually ends up happening is that as a hacker, you will break into a system that you feel belongs to a bad actor. Okay? Uh, there's no real justification there aside from, I think I'm doing the right thing. Okay? So I knew the concepts because these guys at CDC created BO2K or Back Warfare 2000. 
And what they wanted to do with that software was to allow hackers to infect computers around the world and then allow Chinese dissidents to use the software to proxy out of China and circumvent the Great Wall of China or the Great Firewall of China. Sorry. I thought that was amazing. I thought that was a hell of a hacktivist operation. And in uh, mid-2000, I engaged in my own hacktivist operation. It was a hack against the United States Navy and the government of Puerto Rico in defense of the island of Vieques. And that's my switch, Chris. When I did that, quote-unquote, first hacktivist operation is when I kind of changed my mindset. Do you know how I know for 100% that you're telling me the, the truth and the God's honest truth? Why? Because that's the hack you told me on the very first day was your first hack. And all these ones you talked about before to on the, the you know, just now, in your mind, they weren't hacks. I mean, that's, you were being honest on that very first day we met you the, the, the day after when you came back into the office, where I said, you know, well, what was your very first hack? Let's start there. And that's the hack you talked about these other little <laughs> ones, the one in Japan and all that in your mind, those weren't hacks. Wow. You know, I think you've probably kind of, I, I, maybe I've taught you, you know, what the difference between a, a hack and not a hack in the legal terms are. And that's sort of why your business has changed, but 100%. You said that, that that Navy hack was your first hack. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. It, it is, right? When you when you look at it from the outside in, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I, at least I've been consistent. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, you've never bullshitted with me. So, you know, you, you know, all the, you know, in your mind, those earlier, what I would say were hacks, weren't hacks. You know, they, they, you, you, you didn't think they were hacks. Well, to quote, to quote my friend Brute Logic... Big shout out to him, Adolfo, on Twitter. Very smart guy. In order to learn to hack, you have to hack to learn. That's kind of how I I, I looked at it. You know, it was very innocent. There was no malicious intent behind like that compromise in that server in Japan or even the compromise of that like German wearer's site, right? Um, it was a learning process. Now, the one thing I'll say is that as soon as I did the Viejas hack, I completely changed my mindset and I started going after pedophiles, which I later found out I did the wrong thing, by the way, audience. If you find a web server that belongs to pedophiles, they're hosting CP or whatever, you're supposed to report it to the FBI. Don't fucking destroy it because you're destroying evidence. You're helping them. In a way, you're helping them. You're hurting their perversion, but you're helping them get away with their crime. Oh, yeah. Well, I learned that later on, Chris. In fact, probably even through a conversation with you. And so, you know, after I did the Viejas hack, I started chasing down, like, these child porn sites because, at, you know, during those times, they were fucking rampant all over the Internet. Yeah. There was no dark web at that moment. So the sites existed, and they were – they were you could access them. And I, I did quite a few. I hacked into several machines and destroyed the servers. Uh, in hindsight, obviously, that was wrong. And if I find something like that now, I'm going to – give Chris a fucking call. Like, yo, tell your buddies about this shit. Uh, but yeah, so that's, you're right. I mean, it was very innocent to me. That's why when, when if you were to ask me, well, what's your first like black hat? Like, what's your real criminal activity? I'll, I'll go back to Viejas. Well, it was interesting. It was interesting uh, going through your mindset and, and your different, in the different ways you've handled things and made decisions. So I, I appreciate diving into that. You know, if uh, if this is the one and only episode that we ever use the term rat, I'm completely comfortable with that and 
hopefully uh, that that term never comes up again. Here, so here's the thing, right? Kind of to wrap up that that portion of the conversation. The decision was hard. It was not an easy decision, and I had to weigh a lot of variables. It wasn't just a quick, oh yeah, fuck everybody. I'm gonna I'm gonna do me. I had to think about my girls. I had to think about the fact that I didn't know anybody. I had to think about, well, maybe it's time to do the right thing. Do I want to continue living this lifestyle? And I'll be honest with you, by the time I was done kind of going over everything in my head, and you said it took two hours, (laughs) my bad for that. Sorry for the wait. But really, those two hours gave me time to really think about all of this shit and figure out that I was doing the right thing. And, you know, I am apologetic to people that felt like, uh, feel like, you know, I swayed them in the wrong direction. That was never my intention. And I am apologetic, extremely apologetic to the victims because there's a lot of victims there, regardless of how you want to justify it, that were collateral damage. And, you know, that's not right. That's not right at all. So with that being said, I made my decision. I stuck with it and I'm a better man now. I've moved on. And I hope others do too. Well, from a very selfish standpoint, I'm glad you made the decision because now I have a very close friend for the rest of my life. So I appreciate that. That's right. <laughs> All right. So now we to, we'll go on to a couple of questions uh, from our listeners. Um, if you have a question for Hacker in the Fed, just send us a send us your questions at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Adam wrote in a question for you, Hector. So he says, uh, on a past episode of Hacker and the Fed, you discussed the NSO group, and the and this reminded me of Phineas Fisher hacking into the hacking team's network and leaking their source code to their exploit toolkit back in 2015, which they sold as a service much like the NSO group does. Do you think a similar hack will occur against the NSO group? Well, I mean, at this point, the NSO group is disbanded, right? Or they're... They're in the shadows. Um, Anything is possible, right? I think the question can be more looked at is when you have such an elevated source of of hacking tools, does that raise uh, your, you know, the target on your back? It definitely raises the stakes, 100%. The reality is that I'm surprised the NSO group was not compromised. But then you have to, you have to look at the situations that were very, very different. You know, when you look at NSO group, they had hired and trained developers and researchers they were highly specialized and they kind of had common goals a lot of it was money but also dealing with anti-terrorism at least at the beginning of it okay uh when you look at a hacking team it was kind of like you know a patch on business where you had a couple of rich people on top hiring whoever they could to develop and research exploits and try to monetize that. It's a two completely different scenarios um, where, yes, money was involved in both cases, but their approaches were different. When you look at the Phineas Fisher hacks, especially with hacking team, uh, you notice that it, it almost seems like, you know, and I'm not big on judging people, but it almost seems like their personal and operational security at that organization was pretty terrible. The screenshots and documentation that came out of that uh, I don't even think there was screenshots. I think there was. Yeah. But the evidence that was laid out, like, here's how I did it. Here's how bad these guys were. Um, here's all their emails. Here are their tools, right? Uh, it was mind-boggling that an organization at that level uh, was compromised in such a way. Now, 
Am I saying that the NSO group or similar are, you know, not only uh, great researchers, but great defenders? I'm not saying that at all. Um, in fact, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of security professionals and practitioners are easier to compromise, not because, you know, not because they're bad at their jobs, but they become comfortable and or lazy. Well, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to get hacked. And those are the guys that get hacked. So that's from my own personal experience. Hopefully they'll listen to Hacker in the Fed and start taking some of our uh, our words of advice. Well, I mean, look, it brings up to a great, it brings up to a great point though, right? We talked a bit about hacktivism and my motivations. You know, when you look at this uh, Phineas Fisher person or persons, I would say as someone that does not align with that part of the industry, we've had this conversation before, Chris, right? I don't, I don't believe in, 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 in weaponizing exploits or vulnerabilities. Um, I'm not keen on selling that shit and buying that shit, but I can see why a hacktivist will go after them. Now, I can't place judgment on, you know, on, on the hacktivist side. It's, it's kind of a middle ground for me. It's kind of hard for me, actually. I don't agree with breaking the law, obviously. What I mean is that hacktivist thought that they were doing the right thing. And I was in that position at one point in my life, so I kind of get it. So when I started as a curious kid and I got into hacktivism, at that point in time, it seemed very noble. All my hacktivist stories were me thinking I was doing the right thing and me being wrong about it. With the exception of the Arab Spring, even that one I'm kind of, I'm kind of in the middle grounds with. I'm going to tell you why. During the Arab Spring, I had compromised several elements or, or many elements of different governments for different dictatorships or dictators. I uh, you know, helped with the initial entry. I helped with exfiltration. I shared that information with reporters. I think there was enough traction there that it may have helped the countries we worked against. But in the grand scheme of things, did it actually help those people? And that's where I find where my stance starts to deviate, Chris. I remember I had somebody, some reporter guy named Tim something. I forgot his name. He stopped me at an event, Tim Poole. He stopped me at an event and he asked me, you know, how I felt about my my compromise with the Tunisian government during the uprising. You know, do I feel good about it? And I said, no. He said, why not? Well, a lot of people died. Did I really even fucking help him? And I don't know the answer to that. Did I make things worse? And I don't know the answer to that. So I am at a point in my life where I'm over it. And, uh, I'll be, uh, I'll be, you know, one of those people in the crowd just looking away, or rather looking, looking at the train wreck ahead of me. But in terms of participating in stuff anymore, no. It's pretty, uh, pretty deep conversation. Well said, though, Hector. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time today. It was, uh, I enjoyed our conversation. We uh, delved into some issues that were kind of uh, deep, but you know, needed to be addressed. New episode of Hacker in the Fed every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I appreciate your time today, Hector. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, brother.